Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today we're joined by Prem Gill, currently a PhD student in the Department of Geography at the University of Cambridge. Thank you for joining us today, Prem. Could you give us a little insight into your work? Hi, my name's Prem Gill. I'm a PhD student and a polar scientist working on the Seals from Space project with the Scott Polar Research Institute at the University of Cambridge, the British Antarctic Survey and WWF. And you recently won an award, Prem, am I right in, in saying so, for the 2020 Going the Extra Mile Award? What was that about? What did you receive it for? I did. So that was related to my work in bringing um, 10 students from either up and underrepresented or disadvantaged backgrounds to the British Antarctic Survey to work with me on my polar research and also train them in how to use the state-of-the-art technology that I use to monitor wildlife, um, Antarctic wildlife from space, but also provide them with an opportunity to meet and collaborate and potentially collaborate with some of the leading experts in polar science that we have at the British Antarctic Survey. And doing that project, I was able to introduce them to polar science in all its various forms. Um, I was able to train them up in how to use uh, state-of-the-art technology to monitor polar wildlife using imagery that's worth, you know, thousands of pounds that I use for my research. And in addition to that, um, some of the students are in ongoing talks on how they can be involved with BAS for their master's research or potential PhD projects. And I even have a small group that's working with me on a long-term project related to my research and the maths department on how we can automate the counting of seals and the mapping of uh, the sea ice habitats that seals require, um, all from satellite imagery. So yeah, um, my department's very, very nice. And someone, it's done anonymously, so I'm not sure who, but someone decided to put me up for an award for that. Seals from space seems like a really uh, uh, attractive, uh, like a fascinating title for your project. Can we rewind a bit um, and just explain to listeners what remote sensing is and and what GIS means in in your work in Antarctica? Mm -hmm. Sure. For my research, the Seals from Space project, we're looking at how you can use remote sensing to monitor Antarctic seals and get a better idea about what their habitat is like. So remote sensing is just the art of uh, measuring the earth and monitoring objects remotely at a distance. And for me, that means using cameras on drones, using cameras on planes, and using cameras on satellites all the way up in space orbiting the earth And by doing so, I'm able to basically observe seals that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And just to give a bit of context as to what I mean by that. So I can essentially take a satellite image in nearly anywhere in Antarctica and have that satellite image at 30 centimetres resolution, which means each pixel is the size of a four piece of paper. 
and that means anything larger than A4 piece of paper, I should be able to see in my satellite image. So that means if you were to leave your laptop out in Antarctica, I could see it from a satellite image. And that also means I can see seals, I can see baby seals, and if a seal has just given birth, we can even see blood on the sea ice all the way from space. Uh, so that enables me to really monitor all these regions which you wouldn't otherwise be able to get to just from my laptop in my flat in Cambridge. And what do you hope to reveal with this research? Uh, why do you study seals in Antarctica? So an interesting thing about the seals in Antarctica is that the seal species found there have some of the largest population sizes of any large mammal. Some people have even estimated the crab-eater seal, for example, being the most numerous large mammal after humans. However, a big issue is that despite these large population sizes, we actually have a really poor understanding of the habitat preferences for Antarctic seals, and as well as the population trends, we're not really clear on whether they're increasing or decreasing at either levels for the population as a whole or for different regions. And um, in the coming decades, as the sea ice, which they're dependent on, begins to decrease as a result of climate change, understanding what their habitat preferences are and what's going on with the population is going to be um, critical to understanding how they'll be able to respond and just how vulnerable they are to the impacts of climate change upon their sea ice habitats. And what type of seals do you study in your work? So the two seals I focus on are the crab eater seal and the Weddell seal. And those are ice seals that live on sea ice. So just to give some context, there's, uh, you have the Ross seal, the leopard seal, the Weddell seal, and the crab eater seal, which are all seals that rely on sea ice for breeding. But the two most numerous of those are the crab eater seal and the Weddell. And I, I'm focused on them because, well, firstly, if you're looking at a satellite image and you see a seal, Visually, it's really, really difficult to tell the difference between seal species. But just because of the sheer number of these seals, you can make a fairly confident guess that it's either going to be a crab eater seal or a Weddell seal. Um, and also they have slight differences in where they're found on the sea ice. During the breeding season, which is when I monitor these seals, Weddell seals are typically found a bit more along the coast in really thick regions of sea ice because they're able to keep breathing holes open with their teeth. Um, whereas crab eater seals can't do that, so they're found a bit further out in the sea on floating bits of sea ice. And also, we believe these two different species of seal like to inhabit different regions, which is something I really want to quantify using satellite imagery, because a lot of those beliefs are based on uh, traditional methods of monitoring seals, which is going out in ships and boats, and that's very infrequent. So what you'll often find is that with each new study, we have a slightly different understanding of what the seals' habitat preference is, what they like to do, where they like to be, and um, satellite imagery provides us sort of the first chance to really look at them on a continental scale. And with that satellite imagery, you mentioned that one pixel was an A4-sized bit of paper. Do you study the crab-eater seals and the Weddell seals across the whole of Antarctica, or do you have specific sites? So the really cool thing about satellite imagery is that you do have the potential to study the population as a whole. Um, however, the satellite imagery is really, really, really big because of the level of detail. So one satellite image can be up to 50 or 60 gigabytes big. So going through that 
on your own. It can take up to <clears throat> four days just to go for a single satellite image. And if you spend, say, hours and hours looking through sea ice and you don't find any seals, it can be one of the most soul-destroying processes known to man. So um, what I like to do instead is choose uh, study sites in certain regions and <clears throat> regions which are important because they may be showing signs of rapid change as a result of climate change or their regions where there's slightly different habitats and slightly unique behavior going on. For example, there's uh, Larsen Harbor where you have, I believe, the only known colony of Weddell seals to breed on land rather than sea ice. And if I can monitor those seals using satellite imagery, it means that perhaps in the future, I can monitor other seals where sea ice disappears to see if they too can breed on land if I am able to detect those with satellite images. But um, to answer your question, most of my focus is on the Antarctic Peninsula, which is one of the most rapidly warming regions in the world. And it's also a region where you get other species of seals which aren't reliant on breeding on sea ice, seals that prefer land. So that's the elephant seal and the fur seal. Those are beginning to move um, southwards and they're beginning to enter the same sort of habitat um, ranges as the Antarctic ice seals. So understanding what's going on with them from a competition point of view is also quite important, which is why I like studying the Antarctic Peninsula. As it's remote sensing, do you ever get to visit the Antarctic Peninsula or is it all done remotely? So a big issue with satellite imagery and in particular studying um, Antarctic seals is just telling the difference between, in my case, what is a seal, what is a rock. And the best way of telling the difference is you just go to your study site and you do what we call ground truthing, which is you go there and you confirm, is this seal, is this rock? So I went down to Antarctica equipped with a thermal camera and a piece of kit called a field spectroradiometer. And using this equipment, I was looking at what the thermal and the spectral signatures are of Antarctic seals. And really, the whole idea is if you can use this equipment to measure the unique light that's reflected off seals. Perhaps you can tell the difference between seals and rocks in satellite images by looking at wavelengths that are invisible to the human eyes, such as UV and infrared. And by measuring the unique light reflected off seals, you can get that spectral signature, which you can then hopefully apply to satellite imagery to count your seals with a bit more confidence and say, look, this is likely going to be a seal rather than a rock because the sort of ratio of lights that are being reflected off this object is way more seal than it is like rock. So yeah, I got to go down to Antarctica in February to do that project and yeah, it was very, very cool. So how was your time in Antarctica? Yeah, so it was a very intense uh, fieldwork program because I had two weeks to do my project and that involved finding seals and I could only measure the seals when it was nice and sunny essentially um, and I was trying to look for seals on sea ice which meant a lot of the times they were not along the coast so to begin with it was really hectic it was every day I was sort of going out with my group looking for these seals and hoping <laughs> hoping it would be sunny when I found them to take uh, the measurements of the light that's being reflected off them but once I got into it um, and I could sort of take in what was going on, I had like a moment when I could actually sort of reflect. And I think there was for me, there was a moment when I was out on a boat 
looking for seals out on sea ice. And I had about a team of, I think it was about five volunteers with me. And sort of just watching them take my um, lead on how to do this project in a very, you know, remote region where you don't have a lot of uh, room to get things wrong. Just seeing people take my lead and have the confidence in me to lead this science project, which is the first time I ever led my own fieldwork project in Antarctica. Uh, yeah, it was really sort of, for me, it built up my confidence a lot. And on top of that, it was just quite surreal to think that a year ago, I was typing this up in a Word document, not really considering that I would actually go ahead and sort of creating these little diagrams in PowerPoint of people holding these little cameras and sticks above seals. And then, yeah, I was watching sort of my Word documents and Word PowerPoints play out in front of me with real people in Antarctica with real seals. And having spent like a year just looking at them from textbooks and as dots in my satellite images to actually seeing the real deal looking back at me, it, it was really surreal, but at the same time, a really, really um, sort of career-defining moment for me. You've described the polar regions as a thermostat for the planet. What do you mean by that? The polar regions are important in terms of the global global climate because what happens in the polar regions isn't confined to the polar regions. The, the polar oceans in particular, they have this sort of global influence on the Earth's climate and they're quite important to really monitor because a change in the polar regions can lead to a dramatic change for the rest of the Earth's climate and weather systems. Um, but not only do you have that sort of global influence of these seemingly remote regions, but the polar regions are also the areas where we're seeing some of the most rapid and earliest changes as a result of climate change. So by monitoring the polar regions, they can act as a canary in the coal mine for climate change to sort of tell you what's going on as a result of global warming. Yeah. We've certainly had that this year, haven't we, with the canary in the coal mine analogy for our polar regions with a heat wave going across the Arctic and a record temperature. Was it 18.3 degrees Celsius? Yeah. So in February, there was a record temperature of 18 degrees and it's worrying in number one. The temperatures are reaching that level, but it's not just a case of the extreme values that are being reached in terms of temperature. It's also the rate at which it's occurring. The previous record in terms of highest temperature was in 2015. So, you know, in just a few years, you're having these uh, records with regards to temperature in Antarctica is just being broken. So the rate at which the records are being broken for temperature are worrying, as well as the magnitude at which it's occurring. And if you look at the region I study, for example, the Antarctic Peninsula, that is a region where you're seeing some of the highest rates of warming on the globe. And that has a big influence in terms of not only does it mean a reduction of sea ice for the species that live there, but it enables other species that perhaps prefer ice-free habitats to colonise those areas. So coming down south from subantarctic islands, you have certain species of seals and penguins that are able to colonise these areas. And also you have an issue in that the Antarctic Peninsula is where you have a lot of human activity. Um, it's where we have the krill industry, so Antarctic krill, is um, exploited. Um, and one of the main reasons for that is to have omega-3 oil. And this always blows my mind. If you go down to a local 
let's say pharmacy or health supplement shop, you can probably pick up omega-3 oil made from Antarctic krill. And it still blows my mind because if you want to bring biological resources from Antarctica, it's extremely difficult to do. But um, yet you can go get some, basically a biological resource from Antarctica from your high street. That is crazy. Have you noticed much change during the course of your PhD? You mentioned 2015 uh, a moment ago. Yeah, so for my PhD, I'm quite new to polar science in that I've only been involved in this research for two years now. However, even in that short time scale, just looking at my satellite imagery, which goes across from 2015 to the present day, you're seeing, the, you're seeing in certain regions a mass reduction in sea ice, um, and in particular during the breeding season for Weddell seals and crab eater seals, which is quite worrying. So I can just visually see that there's certain years where the sea ice has um, reduced quite significantly and sort of understanding what happens to those seals. Do they find other regions with sea ice? Do they simply breed on land, breed on the beaches? We're not completely sure. But um, I've also noticed the change in other ways. For example, I went to Antarctica to do my fieldwork project in March. And when I was talking to more senior scientists who have been involved in polar research for a lot longer than I have for advice on, you know, when should I do my project? What should I have to think about? Just to provide, provide a bit of context, I went to Antarctica to uh, basically monitor Antarctic ice seals who live on sea ice. But you also get Antarctic seals that don't live on sea ice. You have the fur seal and the elephant seal, which breed on land. I'm not really interested in those so much. Main focus is ice seals. But what I was told is when I go in March, you're going to basically find a lot of fur seals, you're going to find a lot of elephant seals, and a lot of the ice seals would have moved down south. And you know, what I'm always informed is if you had done your study a few decades ago, yeah, it would have been easy to find your ice seals. But with each decade, you're basically having these um, sub-Antarctic species just extending their range southwards and sort of pushing in. And with everyone I talk to, whether it's a, a study to do with walrus in Svalbard or if it's a study of ice seals in the UK, it's always the sense of, if you had asked me a few decades ago, this would have been the advice. However, now with the reductions in sea ice and the, just the dramatic change and the change at which is occurring in the polar regions, you're going to have to do this or try that or you'll be limited in when you have to go. Shifting focus to you slightly, Prem, um, I understand you've featured in a National Geographic article and that you're trying to widen the scientific audience of your work by mixing seal noises with grime music. Is that true? That is true. I am indeed trying to make grime music from the sounds of seals. give a bit of context with that. So Antarctic seals are really cool in that they make these sort of otherworldly cosmic sci-fi-esque noises. They sound a bit like um, spaceships from retro uh, sci-fi movies. And for me, when I was listening to Antarctic seals for the first time make these noises, I was like, ah, sounds a bit like grind music, um, which is what I grew up listening to. And um, Anyways, a few months later on, uh, I was giving a presentation on my research and I decided to do this little pop quiz where I was not just, well, I was playing sound bites of Antarctic seals, but also playing space noises. So what I mean by that is um, 
in Antarctica, we have a base named Halley, and at Halley, we have a low-frequency radio receiver to monitor space weather. And from that radio receiver, we're able to get the noises related to the southern lights. So when geomagnetic storms create southern lights, those particles also release natural radio waves, which are picked up by the low-frequency radio receiver. And when you sonify those noises related to the southern lights, it sounds really, really, really similar to Antarctic seals. So I thought, oh, that's quite funny. I'll do a little pop quiz with the noises from space and the noises from seal, and you have to guess which is which, because my research is seals from space. Um, and there was a guy in the audience who was like, oh, I make techno music, can we uh, work on something? And I was like, oh, to me it's a bit more like grime, so could we do grime instead? And now it's involved into this bigger, hopefully VR project, where not only are we going to be making the noises of grime from Antarctic seals, but we're also going to be showcasing the plight of the Antarctic seals and the science that's being done to save them. The science I do day to day with my higher resolution satellite imagery in this immersive experience and by getting um, kids from say inner city working class backgrounds to play this experience, we hope it will help them um, have a different idea of what a polar explorer looks like, not just sepia toned images of sort of Victorian people, but also um, it will show them and it will enable them to actually interactively do the science I'm doing, you know, counting the seals on the satellite images and show them that they too have the uh, skills and the ability to become a polar scientist or a polar explorer. And that's sort of targeting um, kids who are secondary school level, but I was also interested in how can I change the image of what a polar explorer is for young kids because I think this goes for everyone. A lot of your belief on what you can do is seeing people who look like you and what they do. And by having an article in National Geographic Kids, um, which not only showcased my research and what I do with seals and what I do with satellite imagery, but also talking about my background, how I come from um, the Sikh background. My parents are from the Punjab in North India and how it's a bit rare for me to be in this field. Having all of that will hopefully, you know, for Black and Asian kids, when they see it, they might go, oh, he's a bit like me. So, yeah, polar science is something I can consider when I'm older. So that was the sort of thought process behind having that article and the grime experience. And, yeah, hopefully, hopefully it'll change um, people's view of what a polar explorer can be from um, certain groups that aren't involved in polar science. And what would you say to someone from a BAME background, so Black, Asian, minority, ethnic, um, about your life at Cambridge, doing a PhD or being a, a polar researcher? Um, I would say that in some ways it's a bit isolating because depending on where you've grown up in the UK, what your upbringing was like. For me, growing up in Reading, um, I had a very sort of diverse cohort of friends from all over the world. But yeah, that isn't going to necessarily be the case if you enter polar science. However, you will be doing things that perhaps no one in your community has done yet, um, doing things that your family and friends probably would never imagine you doing. Um, and that in itself is really, really cool because just by existing in polar science as yourself, you basically help 
inspire other people from your community to look at this or enter this or help their kids to consider this as a career. Um, and I, you know, I get emails over social media from parents saying, oh, my child has read your article. They really love, um, you know, science. They really love animals. How can they become involved in this research? Um, and I don't think that would exist unless you were there as someone for your community to basically talk to and see and interact with. So what I would say is that although there might not be many of you in this field, you have a large opportunity to make a lot of big change, not just within your research, but within society as well. Of course, opportunity for people to stamp their mark and to change the image of what a polar explorer is and looks like. Finally, what does the future hold for Polar Prem? When does this project conclude Seals from Space and what is the next one on the horizon? Okay, uh, unfortunately for Polar Prem, I'm entering my final year during the COVID-19 crisis. So um, some of my field works had to be, has been a bit shifted around. It's been a bit delayed. Um, and essentially it's just because we don't want to have the risk of COVID-19 being um, entering Antarctica, essentially, because it is the one region, to my knowledge, the only region, should I say, that has not been exposed to COVID-19. So we want to keep it that way. And fortunately for me, that means my fieldwork, which I plan to do this December, is not going to be taking place. So I am basically in full, full sort of throttle mode trying to figure out how to go about adapting my fieldwork and how I can go about adapting my research in this COVID-19 crisis world. But um, aside from that, it, it's going well. I, Like I mentioned, there were a the group of students who I brought along to work with me. We're working on a long-term research project, and a lot of the results from that are starting to come out. So I'm just busy working away on that at the minute. And um, yeah, I guess in the future, it's just hopefully more polar adventures, more polar science, and a bit more conservation on my radar is, is all I want and all I hope for. Thank you so much for joining us today, Prem, and good luck for your system science internship program and your future research projects. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And um, if anyone wants to follow my research or find out a little bit more on what I do, you can follow me on social media with the username Polar Prem. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.